Move Forward Radio is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at MoveForwardPT.com. You're listening to Move Forward Radio, a podcast featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts with advice on how you can move forward. Opioid addiction is a national epidemic that reaches beyond drug users to, in some cases, their newborn children. Neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS, occurs when an infant is born having been exposed to opiates through his or her mother and experiences withdrawal after birth. In this episode of Move Forward Radio, three medical professionals with a great deal of experience with NAS discuss signs and symptoms, treatment in the hospital, and aftercare. Sharing their insights into this condition, how it's treated, the role of parents, and how best to prevent it in the first place are physician Divya Rana, physical therapist Bertie Gatlin, and occupational therapist Kalyani Garde. Here's our conversation. Well, Dr. Rana, um, as you describe it, I mean, there, there are a lot of factors that have to be uh, considered here. It's a, it's a very uh, complex uh, condition to, uh, to diagnose and to treat. So can you talk a little bit about the keys to managing this condition, what, what you can do as a physician, and as a segue to bringing Bertie and, and Kalyani into this discussion, why a team of healthcare professionals is needed and, and what health disciplines typically are involved? Sure. So first and foremost uh, is uh, people who are taking care of these babies need to understand what this uh, problem is, meaning the training of the people who would be involved in uh, taking care of these uh, babies has to happen, meaning my uh, nursing care uh, will be different for these babies than the nursing care of, let's say, a baby who was not born with this problem. So the first is the training and education of the people who will be involved in taking care of these babies in understanding how do you evaluate these signs and symptoms. And, it, and the other thing we start off is, uh, and every center has their um, training modules and they use what we call withdrawal scores. Uh, the most common withdrawal uh, score tool uh, within the United States is called Fenegan Scoring System or a modified Fenegan Scoring System. And um, the bedside nurse uh, is going to score the baby on certain signs and symptoms. And at the end of the day, there will be a score that will be assigned for that baby. And based off of that score, as physicians, we try to assess to treat or not to treat. The other aspect that happens is uh, that the care providers also need to work with the mother of these infants to get the mother involved from the get-go. And this is very important, Eric, because we have seen that when mothers are involved, the bonding happens that these babies need less amount of medication and go home sooner. So again, uh, it is very important that the healthcare providers understand that the involvement of the family is also very important. As I say, that sleep is disrupted in these babies. They get startled easily, so they are provided um, a dark, quiet room so that their sleep is not disrupted. Um, more comfort measures are given, like swaddling. So before the medications are even started, these are the things that happen from the get-go where we provide comfort measures for these babies um, so, so that you know these babies 
potentially um, can benefit from having less amount of uh, medications being used for the treatment of neonatal abstinence syndrome. And I think so that's where our physical therapists, um, you know, like Bertie and Kalyani, have a role in um, taking care of these babies. So, uh, so that's a, that's a good segue to, to talk to you, uh, Bertie. Uh, you're a pediatric physical therapist uh, who works in neonatology. Can you talk a little bit about the rise of NAS and how it's affected your job, and has it become a bigger part of what you do? Definitely, the number of babies that are being, you know, born exposed to these types of opioids are increasing, just like Dr. Rana said, and they are presenting with signs and symptoms that are making it difficult for them to thrive in regards to, you know, having a, a stable system um, that we think of newborns, you know, having the ability to sleep soundly for two to three hours, um, transition to an alert state, wake up, latch onto the bottle or the breast, efficiently feed, for a you know a significant amount of time to get their nutrition, and then they typically will calm right back down into their deep sleep. And that deep sleep period is such a, a vital component for these infants' behavioral system, as well as their their typical developmental system of you know growth and fine motor skills down the road. So what happens is the NAS is interfering with this, and and just like the, Dr. Rana said, they have a very um, erratic behavior. They tend to have difficulty um, maintaining a sleep state. They have irritability, not only just with their um, behavioral system, but also with their own, you know, physiological makeup, their GI system, their um, whole alerting behavior is interrupted. Their whole ability to transition back to a sleep state is interrupted. And then, of course, they're unable to maintain a sleep state. And so as physical and occupational therapists, we're really challenged with trying to intervene with these babies to try and facilitate a, you know, calm environment, but also a calm behavioral system for these babies so that they can achieve these, you know, needed rest periods and a better and improved efficiency at, at being able to feed so in addition to that, it becomes very challenging because of all the babies in the, the NICU. You know, this is just a, a small subpopulation of those infants, and, and yet I feel like many of us in the NICU as therapists really are challenged with trying to meet the needs of these babies. We know that they thrive when they have more hands-on, um, and yet, you know, that's a challenge when when we ourselves have many babies on our loads in the NICU and the the drastic increase of these kids, not only in the census but also in their need of handling, is a real challenge for, for PTs and OTs in the NICU. Can you talk a little bit about some of the types of things that physical therapists can do to help these infants, both in the hospital and after discharge? Yes. In the hospital, of course, we're instrumental in being a part of the team to make sure the environment is, is as conducive to a calm. Um, we, we try to have it not as light or we try to have it darkened so that they can have, a you know, again, uh, a calmer experience. We also want the noise levels to be decreased. 
And then in addition, we use different types of techniques, whether that is a handling um, technique or a massage technique or, again, different types of positioning to facilitate more of that physiological flexion or that, that tucked-up position that the baby would have if they were still inside the mom's uterus. We also know that during the uh, positioning in the uterus, the babies don't move as much. They have a smaller ability to extend their arms and legs, so we call that um, you know, a smaller amount of range of motion. So we try to supplement that in the NICU because we do see that if we offer them swaddling or nesting or a decrease in their ability to move in their environment, that they actually will have a calmer state and they don't feel as lost. And then in addition with the opioid withdrawal, they're going through tremorous types of motor patterns. And those patterns can escalate to, of course, being very... Uh, unrestful and being very traumatic for the baby. So by positioning the babies in swaddled um, types of nests, we can try to facilitate that calm um, environment. We also do a lot of family education or caregiver education, and many of these babies, we, we want those parents to be involved as much as you know they can. Um, and we try to offer them the education to understand what's going on with their infant, why they're exhibiting these behaviors and these motor patterns, and what they can do to help ease this transition. Many of these moms are in some form of a rehab program, and so they know that they want you know, to help themselves and their little infant. And so by providing the education, we can hopefully, you know, maybe change a long-term um, episode or event into a positive outcome down the road. As far as outpatient, the biggest things for these infants when they transition back to the home or to wherever their discharge plan is going to be, we try to encourage those caregivers and family members to follow through with the interventions that we have taught them in the NICU. Once these babies go home, they continue to exhibit these behaviors and motor patterns, and it's not you know, a period to just stop all the nesting or the intervention or the deep handling. It's also a time to really continue because these babies will continue to exhibit these behaviors. We also will take follow-up programs with these infants. It is crucial that, you know, the United States recognize that these infants need to have follow-up programs. And it's really been on the forefront as far as funding to offer some type of either um, you know, a follow-up program or some type of a developmental access for these infants. Unfortunately, our early intervention system, depending on the presentation of these infants, they may not qualify for that, top, that type of a follow-up program through our federally funded intervention programming. So the United States and parts of the CDC and the NIH and some of the other grants within the universities and healthcare systems are offering NAS follow-up programs. And that's something that is crucial for these babies because they will fall through the cracks um, and then show up later in school systems with, you know, educational, developmental, and behavioral needs. So right now in the NICU, it's important for us to educate the family members, set up some type of follow-up program, 
and then ensure that these babies are followed through once they go home. When, when you talk about a follow-up program, can you, can you talk a little bit about what some of the components of that might be? Sure. Many of the follow-up programs are going to include either um, the neonatologist or pediatrician like Dr. Rana or someone who subspecializes in developmental pediatrics. could be also a child psychologist who specializes in the developmental aspect of uh, infants. We also typically have a program that will include physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, nutrition, and then um, another component of social work or case management. Again, continuing to look at the big picture for these infants' follow-up programming is to include all of these aspects to make sure that not only is the baby's behavioral and developmental system um, thriving, but also nutritionally, what type of weight gain are these babies um, having and, and is it significant, you know, for their age, for their, age their height and, and um, all of those aspects. So the, the pediatrician and then again, like I said, the therapist are instrumental in that. And then another part is that case manager or that social worker component to ensure that the family are getting the, their needs met, not only from the emotional and social aspects, but also to ensure that hopefully mom is set up to succeed with her rehab program and, you know, not fall back into some of those same behaviors that were um, there before. Now, I want to bring uh, Kalyani into this discussion. Um, uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy are uh, often work in tandem, but, but they are different disciplines and they, 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 do, uh, they have different goals. Uh, Kalyani, can you talk a little bit about the role of occupational therapy and occupational therapists in treating these uh, infants, um, both in the hospital and after discharge again? Right, right, definitely. When, they are, when the infants are showing signs of acute withdrawal symptoms, just like Birdie reiterated, reiterating that occupational therapists help with uh, working with infant sensory systems to keep them more behaviorally calm and quiet, uh, focusing on that deep, quiet, continuous sleep, and also helping parents understand the condition that their infants are and what can help them is where the occupational therapists play a major role. We try to be kind of like a communication liaison between the parent and the nursing involved in the care of this infant, and we do programs such as kangaroo care, which will involve holding the infant skin to skin when the infant is awake and alert, if they're able to tolerate that touch and that contact in that uh, given moment and kind of help parents involve in the care of their infants as much as possible. Reiterating again that it is the, their presence in the NICU that is required when the infant can will be awake or alert and helping the parents take over their caregiver role uh, from the get-go of as, as soon as the baby is in the NICU. Um, a lot of the times these parents feel, uh, experience guilt feelings. Um, these moms are very uh, intimidated by the NICU environment with alarms and all the noises that go on. So kind of Supporting the parent through that process and yet kind of keeping them involved with the care of their baby, um, that is where the occupational therapists play a huge role. 
uh, sometimes these babies end up spending three, four weeks in the hospital, uh, depending on their withdrawal symptoms and how their progression has gone on with the pain, with the morphine. And um, this, the, in the long term, like in two, three weeks after the infant has been in the hospital, is able to tolerate more touch, and um, occupational therapists can then. Uh, help the mother bond with these babies by showing some massage techniques and um, being how to therapeutically handle these babies, how to read these infants' infants' cues. Uh, these babies can go, as Birdie said, from quiet, alert state uh, to a crying state, like within a, a second. And so these moms kind of need to be in there to help read these infants' cues and to be able to better handle them um, and provide care and yet feel confident about taking them back home with them depending on what setting they're going home to. So occupational therapist is really closely working with the parent and the nursing to kind of bring that component in and also help uh, with the social aspect of it in terms of um, how the the mom, if the mom has issues, uh, if she's on any anti-anxiety medications, if she's able to care for this baby, what other supports that this mom might need, um, kind of being a communicator between the social work as well. And this is some of the ways we can help while the baby is in the hospital. Kalyani, is, is, is occupational therapy uh, uh, likely to be involved uh, uh, on a longer term after the, after the infant's been brought home? Absolutely, absolutely. Depending on what environment the infant is going back into, uh, we definitely recommend and encourage the caregiver, and sometimes it could be mom, sometimes it could be grandmother, to bring them back to the developmental clinic. We kind of educate um, the parents to the best extent possible in terms of how important it is, as Birdie mentioned, regarding their weight gain, if they've had feeding issues while they were in the hospital, uh, to be able to follow up at the clinic to make sure they're reaching all their developmental milestones and goals as needed, as age-appropriate, as close to age-appropriate as possible, and if there were any uh, red flags, so to speak, while we see follow them in the developmental clinic, we can kind of get the help that they need through early intervention and make the appropriate recommendations. And that's where OT also plays a key part for long-term care. Uh, Bertie, uh, I wanted to ask you as well, uh, what are some of the long-term developmental issues these infants may face, and, and what are the implications in terms of physical therapy and involvement by PTs over the longer haul? Most of these children will develop what we call motor planning concerns, sensory integration concerns, and then generalized developmental delayed patterns. When these children are moving through patterns of sitting, pulling to stand and creeping or crawling on all fours, they will typically reach these milestones. However, they will have a different way of reaching those milestones. Again, they're unorganized. They tend to have um, coordination difficulties. So that smooth kind of transition from 
you know, pulling to stand from sitting or from tall kneeling that typical children do, these children may take longer because they kind of have to figure out their own way to do it. Or they have multiple ways and they're not as efficient. And so that kind of delays their general development and uh, gross motor skills. And then like Kaliani said, the biggest concern with these kids is long-term, that motor planning that continues to be um, challenging for them when they enter preschool and school age. We tend to see these kids do okay with their gross motor skills, but yet they tend to have a real difficult time trying to process all the different sensory input and then turning around and having a functional task or skill completed. So they may be too sensitive to noises or they may be too sensitive to the lights. They don't accept change very easily. And again, I would love to say all of the kids, you know, react the same way, but they don't. Um, like Dr. Rana said, every mom's body is different and every baby's body is different, even though they may be exposed to the same type of opioids, and yet, you know, one child may react to sounds and lights and movement very hyper-responsive, um, where another child may be very hypo-responsive, or one child may be very hyper-excitable, and the other child, it takes a lot to get them up and going. And those can be real challenges when they get into the school system because, again, you know, our children are expected to either sit and, you know, learn the, you know, educational um, skills that the teacher is presenting to them. And OT specifically is instrumental in, you know, trying to help these children and the classroom teachers figure out the best way for these children to learn. A lot of these infants grow up having um, a lot of attention issues and behavioral issues, like Bertie said earlier. And so it's really key, I believe, to follow these infants long term, like as the, not only right after they are born for up to their three years of age, but further until they are school-aged. Because a lot of research shows that uh, a lot of these kids start having problems in school schools when they're in third grade or which gets even higher or increases exponentially when they go up in high school and fifth grade onwards. So it's really important, I feel, that they receive the follow-up care, um, whether it's from state level or federal level, and that the families are made aware that they need to get some help early on and not wait till they are much older. Again, making the point that even though neo neonatal is in the is in the name of this uh, condition, that it's Correct. it's something that uh, continues. As Dr. Rana and others across the United States are gathering the information, the neonatal abstinence syndrome quote title is you know I can see in the future there being a need to have um, you know a different type of diagnosis or maybe diagnoses for these children who who are exposed in utero and, and um, like Kalyani said, once they get to school age because um, because they are having long-term, you know, effects. Mm -hmm. 
to that and I can also add is American Academy of Pediatrics does recommend long-term follow-up of uh, babies uh, with uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome, either treated or not treated because right. of this development and behavioral risks. And uh, community pediatricians um, know that, and in our own development clinic, we do get referrals for children who have that problem, but there is still a need for further education in, uh, in getting the community pediatricians or community general providers to understand that the intervention should happen from the start, from the earlier start, than when, as Kalyani and Birdie are saying, that by the time they have hit the school age, we have lost a tremendous amount of time that we could have actually intervened. Um, and then probably have better outcomes and in interventions done than when we see them in the school age. Uh, we have a Tennessee early intervention system that has different criteria for which an infant might qualify if, if they need services beyond um, the NICU or beyond the hospital when they go home. So I, th I, I think it would be helpful to have this kind of criteria set in where they could be automatically eligible for services uh, if they have had NICU stay or or maybe shorter length of stay even to be followed up with early intervention services. And there, there are changes being done at the federal level to trickle down to each state system to have special evaluation um, kind of eligibility criteria um, for these children. So I, you're going to see more of these children followed by these early intervention government funded programs. Um, it's just, you know, in the process. That's, that's the concern. We don't need to wait. We need to do things now. So. I want to circle back now to, to Dr. Rana. Um, you know, clearly, uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome is a, is a societal problem, but it's and a medical one, uh, both. Uh, the trends suggest that the numbers of infants with uh, NAS will remain high until society better addresses and, and mitigates this growth of drug addiction. But uh, I want to ask you, is there anything in, in the research, in the lessons learned by the medical community over the last few years, and or uh, even in just greater awareness of the problem that, that kind of gives you hope for the long term? Sure. So um, as, as you correctly point out, that this is a public health issue. This is a societal issue. And um, the more we get the information out to the public, uh, we uh, are better informed, meaning if you look at the incidence of uh, drug overdoses, you can see that there is a geographic pattern to it. We see that some pockets, some counties within the United States are especially struggling hard with this problem where you have multiple um, uh, people within the same family that are struggling with this problem. So the first thing we learn from this is that prevention is the key here, that the cycle of this abuse that goes from, let's say, parents to children has to be stopped. Uh, the other lesson we uh, learn from is uh, as soon as you see an increase in incidence of a problem, that you know, all the resources should be made available to address that issue. Um, to that end, we have seen uh, more awareness, more education of the healthcare providers. And within the state of Tennessee, since January of 2013, NAS is a reportable condition. 
And what that has done is, is that we can actually monitor in real time how these problems are emerging, which counties these problems are emerging, and to start your prevention programs where these problems lie. These women who are struggling with these problems also should have the support to have a good prenatal care. We know that they are at high risk of not having prenatal care. So with education of the providers, for example, if she's going out to get a pain medication from a physician, that physician is now educated to ask if she's on birth control. If not, then to provide her resources to have that in place and to educate her how the use of the pain medication can affect the pregnancy. And if, let's say that she does become pregnant while she's on these medications, then there are now specialists who deal with mothers with pain addiction issues where she gets into the maintenance programs like methadone and buprenorphine. And now we know that the use of these medications, even though it does not prevent NAS um, for these babies, but it does improve the outcome. It does improve where she does not go out and take multiple medication. So those programs are now in place. We also know that, you know, when these mothers take these babies home, that the program should be in place, just like Bertie is saying, how to follow up these families, how to support this mother who is dealing with this problem herself and now has a newborn at home that probably needs additional um, care, that baby needs additional therapies, how to support that mother. So these are the lessons learned, not just by the physicians, but as a community, as the health advocates um, in general. The other thing that happens is, from the physician aspect, is to learn more about the pathophysiology of this disease. So, for example, at the University of Tennessee, we have started, uh, you know, several research projects, and one of the research projects that I've been involved with is studying the sleep pattern on these babies using limited channel EEGs. And uh, we can see that, it's, you know, we see that these babies don't sleep, but we also have an objective uh, assessment of those sleep patterns. Um, with the, our physical and occupational therapist, Jacoliani, we are also studying, uh, you know, different massage techniques that we can assess how these can improve um, their state during the NICU. Can these techniques decrease the amount uh, of uh, medication they will use or decrease the length of hospital stay? Uh, we will also going to study metabolic aspects of this problem. We're going to study genetic aspect of this problem. So we do get uh, we do get into research projects where we get more information about this problem. Now we do see some uh, some light at the end of the tunnel uh, with the most uh, current uh, data that we have for the uh, year 2016. We see that for the past three to four years, I think so, the incidence of NAS has kind of plateaued. So even though we see that the problem is not completely gone, that the problem is still existing at very high rate, at very high incidence, but at least I'm not seeing that dramatic rise that we had seen in the early part of the century. So I think so. The efforts that were made 
at uh, the federal level, at the state level, at the community level in educating people. And, and even a program like we are talking right now is important because it makes the awareness, it makes it possible for people to understand that these medications are not benign. It makes it possible for that mother to understand that if I'm using this medication, perhaps I need to seek, you know, um, some support so that the baby, the outcomes for that baby will be improved. So it is clearly important. And I have great hope that with all these efforts, that surely but, you know, steadily we will see uh, a decrease in the incidence of, this, uh, of the NAS. Dr. Divya Rana, uh, yes. Bertie Gatlin, uh, Kalyani Garde, thank you so much for sharing your insights into this public health issue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guest is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or find previous episodes at moveforwardpt.com. Move Forward Radio is brought to you by moveforwardpt.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at moveforwardpt.com.